LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. My name's Greg Moffat and my guest today is James Corbett, an independent journalist who's been living and working in Japan since 2004 He's the man behind CorbettReport.com. The Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source which operates on the principle of open-source intelligence and provides podcasts, interviews, articles and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the central banking fraud and much, much more. James joins us today to discuss the aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster of March 2011 and the ongoing cover-up surrounding almost every aspect of this catastrophic event. There is something rotten in the state of Japan. Stay tuned to find out why. Hello and welcome James Corbett, uh, CorbettReport.com. Thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we're here, James, today to talk about uh, the Fukushima nuclear disaster and some related issues. And this, of course, Fukushima uh, was headline news worldwide, obviously. Um, But then a bit like the Deepwater Horizon uh, disaster in the Gulf, uh, it went to a status of relative silence in the media. I mean, the stories are still out there, but basically it's gone quiet. And, you know, I sense a cover up. You have documented um, a lot of cover ups. So we're going to walk through some points pertaining to Fukushima and where the official version uh, might differ from reality. And the first thing to get into, I suppose, is that the Japanese government estimates, uh, the last thing I read, that the total amount of radioactivity released into the atmosphere was one-tenth as much as Chernobyl. Everyone will remember that um, nuclear disaster in the Soviet Union in 1986. Now, one-tenth, I've seen that contradicted in so many places. In terms of radiation release, um, what's the latest sort of information that you have? That's an excellent question. In fact, I, I don't know what the very latest is. I believe the last time that I checked, they were revising that one-tenth estimate because they were now recalculating how much had gone into the ocean. And I think that's an extremely important and difficult part of this particular situation is that this is not a Chernobyl-like release in which it all uh, all went into the atmosphere. And then once that was contained, it, it was basically a, a, it stopped continuing to, to spill into the environment. In the Fukushima case, it's the, uh, the question of the, the water that they were using to cool it that was leaking out into the ocean. And, and there's still uh, questions of leaks and, and uh, in some of the reactor buildings. So unfortunately, it's a much, much harder situation to get any kind of reliable estimate on, which is why I, I don't think I would trust any of the, uh, the estimates that they have at this point. I think we the best we can do is just sort of track the 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 demonstrable radiation dispersion both in the air and and 
and through the water so far. But uh, but in terms of a reliable estimate, in, in terms of comparing it to, to Chernobyl, I think that that in itself is a bit of a uh, not not a fruitless activity, but one that perhaps gives a false impression anyway, that, because the Fukushima and Chernobyl disasters were so different in so many different respects that mm. I think that to compare the two, even in, as a way of trying to get in the public's mind and an, an idea of the scope of what's happening is is itself perhaps a disservice to this information. Yes, well, I suppose it's the events like this. I mean, I, they're, they're still relatively rare, um, thank goodness. Uh, but it was the first point of reference that people had in the same way that they made comparisons with Deepwater Horizon to other oil spills that had been fundamentally different in nature. Um, but it was, it's what the media in particular like to do, isn't it? Like, oh, well, what historical precedent do we have for this? And Chernobyl was the obvious thing to go to. But of course, uh, Fukushima, whatever the scale of it, in using various parameters, it's much more complex uh, than Chernobyl, partly because there was more than one reactor involved. Exactly right. It, this was a uh, something that occurred in multiple different reactors and it took place over a much longer time scale than, than Chernobyl, which again was was a certain point in time in which the the reactor breached and and there was that uh, that that incident that could be sort of identified. But this was a, sort of an unfolding disaster that took place in in many different steps, and along that way there was not only the 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 confusion, the fog of war, if you will, that that the uh, the TEPCO and the government was going through in trying to determine what happened. But then there was that further uh, fog of war that, that descended over the public because they were trying to get this information out from TEPCO and the government. And of course, there was uh, various layers of cover up going on, as as you alluded to earlier. So there's uh, there's multiple layers that one has to go through to even come to an understanding of what was happening a year ago, let alone what's continuing to happen right now. Yeah. And there were... Um... I remember vividly watching the footage, some of it amateur footage, um, at Fukushima of a series of explosions that took place. Uh, now, there were people were speculating, saying, you know, this is a nuclear explosion. But as I understand it, it was just hydrogen. But uh, um, even in that situation, it was it, it was it was extremely dramatic. And uh, it, it, I mean, it, in terms of meltdowns, you had three, as I say, at uh, Fukushima, one at, at Chernobyl. And then you had the aggravating factors at Fukushima of the uh, what caused it in the first place, which, of course, was the um, earthquake and tsunami, uh, whereas Chernobyl just kind of quietly melted down on its own. And if that had just happened at Fukushima, that would have been you know, a major situation they had. But the fact that the, in the immediate aftermath that the, you had all this other devastation, not just of the nuclear plant, but the whole surrounding area, and of course, people couldn't get in there afterwards to start work on it. I mean, with Chernobyl, I mean, in retrospect, a lot a lot of people died as a result, but people were able to go into the plant immediately to start some kind of uh, work to ameliorate the situation. Well, that's right. In fact, that's that's in, uh, an integral part of this problem is the design of the reactor itself. This is a uh, Mark I reactor that it has been identified for, for years as being problematic. In fact, some of the engineers who were even involved in in taking this type of reactor to the market, ended up defecting from their their company about some of the the problems that were inherent in these, uh, the design of this uh, reactor, which has led in in certain respects to the types of problems that that we're dealing with now, um, not just us here in physically in Japan, but people all around the world who are now watching what's going to play out, especially at reactor four 
which suffers from the most ridiculous design. You'd like you'd like to call it a design flaw, but of course, clearly this was this was part of the intention to to put the spent fuel pool right next to the reactor itself, so that if there is a problem like this, the entire uh, not just the the fuel that's in the reactor, but the fuel that's been stored up is now at risk, and uh, and as that's something that we're seeing a very real possibility of the reactor for the, the containment actually collapsing because of the structural problems with it. And uh, because of the amount of fuel that's been stored there, which again was part of the design of the reactor itself. I mean, this is, this is something of a real world importance if that happens, uh, just a really unthinkable disaster. So I think that this goes back to, to some of those, those absolutely fundamental issues to even how this was constructed. And of course, uh, G and the, uh, the designers of the Mark one did recommend various upgrades and, and changes to, to the reactors throughout the world because, because of the design flaws that, that had been identified. But uh, Fukushima, like many of the other reactors, and, and there are, I think, something like in the neighborhood of two dozen of them in the U.S. right now, have been at various stages of that, uh, that redesign and the, the retrofitting of the, the sort of workarounds of the design problems. So it, it's been something that's, that's really code, coded into the, the nature of the disaster itself and, and the, the plants themselves. And it comes down to that, that type of level. So it's, it's something that we have to think of not just as, as some sort of cataclysm, cataclysmic event that took place that we could never have envisioned and that nothing could ever you know, prevent something like that. Of course, those types of unbelievable uh, things do occur from time to time, massive tsunamis. But, uh, but because of the way that the, the reactors were placed, the, because of the way they were designed, it actually exacerbated the problems and made it extremely difficult, as you indicate, for people to even get there in order to to do any type of containment or to try to stop the or head off the uh, the explosions of the pass. So, of course, the, the explosion that you're talking about occurred as a result of hydrogen buildup um, from zirconium cladding that was basically melting as uh, in the superheating cores and and it, there's a hydrogen buildup it, it creates an explosion which uh is not exactly the type of nuclear explosion that some people were speculating out at the time but because of the uh the fact that the f spent fuel was being stored in a, the same area there is uh almost uh, undoubtedly pretty much it's a certainty and has been confirmed now that uh, that plutonium itself was actually ejected during those explosions and uh, the, the ramifications of that are quite huge because this is not like something like uh, iodine-138, uh, which is, is problematic but will has a half-life of something in the order of eight days. But, of course, when we start talking about plutonium and other elements, this will not biodegrade for you know billions of years. So we're talking about something that, that has an extreme, extreme effect on the environment that uh, we're only beginning to understand the scope of what happened there. So how can we even think about dealing with this problem at this point? Yeah, well, basically, there's many different grades of uh, radioactive material, as you say, some of which are you know, relatively harmless and some of which are absolutely beyond lethal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a whole shopping list of, of materials involved, you know, in any nuclear plant. Um, so it's a quite that complicates the situation further in terms of uh, cleanup. And in any event, I mean, no matter what happens with, uh, you were mentioning Reactor 4, I mean, even in the most sort of benign aftermath, this is going to take decades to clean up and to, to decommission this plant. 
Absolutely right. And I think we saw that in the uh, very hasty way in which they declared that the reactors had reached cold shutdown last year. And uh, and yet still, we, we still have problems with the uh, thermometers in, in reactor two, etc. And, and there's still some question about uh, just at what state the, the reactors are even in. And yet they were very quick to declare cold shutdown. And, and that's the point at which we saw at least the, the media sort of taking that as their cue to start wrapping up their coverage and moving on to other things, as you noted at the beginning of this, uh, this conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I, and to a certain extent, one can understand from simply the the, the way that the media is, the way it exists, the way it's set up, uh, it's difficult to continue covering something that is a very slow, very long-term unfolding disaster because there's only so many spins that you can put on the story to try to grab people's attention. And unfortunately, that's the way the media is geared. So one can see them sort of almost breathing a sigh of relief when we get this word from TEPCO, oh, the, uh, the reactor is in cold shutdown. And thus... Well, it, you know, there's obviously there's going to be work to be done, but it's pretty much uh, taken care of at this point. And I think uh, we would be best served to be skeptical about that. And uh, anyone who is concerned about that obviously has to be continuing to follow this story. Yeah, well, the nature of the media as it is today uh, puzzles me sometimes, you know, the 24-7 rolling news thing. Because anytime I'm in a hotel, if I have whatever the local news channel is on, I'm struck by how the not only do the news stories the headline stories repeat every hour, but sometimes less than that. So you can get the headline story every 15 minutes. And I say to myself, well, you know, they've got all this time to fill and there's so many things that they don't report. Why don't they just expand it a little bit? But at the same time, so as much as that would be a cue for them to say, oh, well, why don't we keep covering Fukushima? There's so much happening there. They very much want to move on to the latest thing. So even if, uh, you know, the situation Fukushima takes a nosedive, it's going to have to be something spectacular for the media to show up again. Because as you say, as far as they're concerned, it's kind of that the story's done. The reactors are stable. We've been told everything, you know, nothing to see here. Move along. And, uh, and on that note, actually, I mean, perhaps you could give us your take on what the, the latest situation is, you know, your best information of to what's actually happening at the Fukushima site right now. Well, as I say, there's been stories over the the past few months about uh, problems with the getting reliable temperature readings in some of the reactors, and they've been trying to blame it on faulty thermometers, although that's not necessarily clear that that's what the case is. So there's that's one of the ongoing issues. Um, a, another issue that is that we're starting to see now, uh, there's just been a, a typhoon pass by here that was downgraded to a, a tropical depression by the time it reached. Um, I believe it is, in fact, probably passing over somewhere around the area of Fukushima as we're speaking right now. So uh, so it's it's going past now. It's been downgraded, so it's probably nothing approaching really typhoon strength at the moment. But it does, of course, raise the specter that, of course, we're coming into typhoon season. And uh, with that comes the possibility that one, I suppose, to use an unfortunate phrase, I guess, well-placed typhoon would, would go right through the uh, Fukushima. And if it was strong enough, uh, certainly that could be as damaging to the structural integrity of the remaining reactors as an earthquake. So I think that's something that we'll have to be keeping our eye on once again this year. And and again, as you indicate, since this is a process that will take decades to even begin getting a handle on, and of course, really millennia before it starts becoming something that, that won't actually pose a, a real threat. I mean, this is something that will be a very long-term uh, thing that people will have to think about every year. And again, I think that's the type of problem that our media is particularly situated to not be able to cover in an effective manner. Are we looking at 
some kind of Chernobyl-like, uh, again, not wanting to constantly make comparisons, but one thing that we have seen with Chernobyl is we have a dead zone there, a, just a place where people cannot go. And interestingly, animal life and plant life is thriving in the Chernobyl area, but, you know, it's just as far as human beings are concerned, it's like they were, you know, it's like that book, um, I can't remember the guy who wrote it, The World Without Us, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's, it's a vision of what the world will be without human beings. And is, is that what we're facing uh, for this uh, area of Japan? Uh, that's what we would be facing if the so-called authorities that were dealing with this problem, I think, were being honest with the public. But basically, since the, the get-go, I think that the Japanese government has not been forthcoming about what they know about what the uh, the real radiation level readings have been. And they have not been honest, uh, I think, probably most specifically for the purpose of having to not having to have that conversation about where the uh, the no go zone should be uh, at, at this point basically the, uh, the the villages around fukushima that had been evacuated have all been repopulated they've all been allowed to return home and uh, and the the exclusion zone has been limited to to a few kilometers at this point it was uh, it was extended beyond that uh, towards the surrounding region in the f- immediate wake of this crisis but it has been quite Quickly, uh, people have been returned to their homes after some decontamination that really basically amounted to power washing some trees and basically putting whatever nuclear material might have been in there into the ground and and basically calling it a day. I mean, if anyone was watching what the so-called decontamination process for some of these towns was, it was, I guess, laughable isn't the right word because it's so serious, but uh, I think you get the idea. So I, I there. Again, I think it's difficult to to come to an understanding of exactly how much uh, radiation people were exposed to because we still continue to see those estimates of what uh, what took place and what radiation dispersed where being revised, uh, even though the government has had the data all the time. And this goes back to something that came out a week or two ago where we had a, a science ministry report. Um, that uh, that detailed how they did have accurate da- data about which uh, direction the the fallout was going and in, in what uh, roughly what degree what dosage uh, in the immediate aftermath of the, the reactor meltdowns and uh, and they had that basically from the inception of the disaster itself the media was asking for it the very same day in March 11th any information they had from from this uh, system which had been set up to do exactly this to forecast in the event of a nuclear emergency where the uh, the fallout was going what kind of disper- uh, dosages people could expect and it's now turned out after this report was released recently yes of course they had that data and they were using it to predict what was happening and uh, there were significant dosages that were taking place in areas to the northwest of Fukushima but they uh, they withheld all of that data deliberately from the media until the 25th of April so basically two months into the disaster before people could even find out what was happening at the time of the disaster so I think we have to constantly be reevaluating what we know because of this type of information which is still to this point only coming out through these types of government reports. No. One of the things, I think there were a certain number of international experts that were obviously called in, but one of the things that was posited in the media, uh, even in the mainstream media, actually, was where was the rest of the world uh, in the Fukushima situation? Now, perhaps you can shed some light on what international assistance there actually was, but there was no impression that um, experts the world over were realizing the potential gravity of the situation and rushing en masse to do whatever they could that that wasn't an impression that I got. 
Well, whatever kind of uh, negotiations were, and discussions were taking place behind the scenes, obviously we're not privy to that. But I think that the IAEA has very deliberately allowed the Japanese government and TEPCO to work through this and to to basically claim authority over the the accident itself. And uh, I, I, again, I'm not sure exactly the, the negotiations that took place to allow that to happen. Obviously, there have been teams from the UN, the IAEA, that have come to inspect uh, what was happening there. And they, they were involved at an early stage and obviously coordinating with the Japanese government. But it has been the Japanese government and TEPCO that has been the, the main point, the go-to points on this entire crisis. And uh, uh, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the meltdowns, uh, it was quite obvious that at the very least, uh, the American naval presence that was in the the area here in Japan uh, clearly uh, would have been able to, and I assume really did detect the meltdowns as they were taking place. And would have been, even if the Japanese government had been, hadn't have been aware of them, which we now know that they were, but obviously the, the U.S. naval uh, detection systems would have been able to allow them to, to let the uh, Japanese government know what was happening. So I think there has been a, a level of international understanding of what was happening there, uh, again, taking place at the governmental and the military level, not at the level of the general pop public. Hmm. But again, uh, it, it depends on what... Uh, what ways that these uh, these government agencies have been coordinating or not coordinating on this. And we've had some some of that kind of coming out over the last uh, several months uh, in terms of the the American nuclear regulators and some of the, the notes and memos about and emails also have been uh, released under Freedom of Information Act about what they knew and what what information they were getting from the Japanese government and when. But again, only uh, only a very few researchers have really been following that carefully, and it, that type of information has been almost completely unreported. So, so there is a story to be told there about how this unfolded, who knew what, when, who decided how to act. But unfortunately, that story hasn't really been well put together from what I've seen. No, I can't even imagine the wrench of uh, something like this happening, you know, near my home, and basically being told or coming to the understanding that you've got to leave and never come back. I just can't imagine that. However, it has happened before in other parts of the world for various reasons, sometimes you know, nuclear incidents, sometimes not. Uh, so I can see why, in terms of those villagers around Fukushima, why they would want to even you know, convince themselves that it was safe to go back, even if they weren't sure. But there's still that erring on the side of caution that even though I can't imagine that happening, I could, rather than run the risk, I'd probably try and come to terms with it. Now, Japan's known for its um, social discipline and, you know, pe people pulling together uh, in common cause when necessary and, you know, uh, subsuming the, the needs of the individual to that of greater society. And can that in some circumstances translate into compliance, a level of compliance that might not necessarily be good for the individual? in terms of going back to live next to Fukushima, for example. Absolutely. I think there's really no question of that for me here, actually living in Japan and seeing the reaction of, of people to this. And I think you have definitely hit a nail on the head when you start talking about the uh, the social discipline, I guess, to, to put it generously, of the, uh, the Japanese people generally. Uh, it, it is a culture that is very much uh, about obeying the rules. And if the, the media says something, then it's probably true. There isn't a lot of room for skepticism, or at least not that I think we would be used to in a lot of other Western countries and, and the way that we're used to questioning authority. It's not something that happens on a societal scale like that as much here in Japan. So it would 
to my mind, it would be very interesting to see. I, I obviously don't want to see this, but uh, it would be interesting to see how a different country would would have dealt with the Fukushima disaster. I think we would have seen something very different from the, from the public in general. Um, here in Japan, there is, as I say, a sort of default tendency for most people to to go along with governmental pronouncements and things like that. And obviously, I'm not trying to diminish from from anything that I- any individual Japanese do or say or think. But uh, but I think that's the overriding tendency here. And I think that has contributed to a type of orderly uh, ordering of the chaos of this disaster in so many different ways. I think that the Japanese government and TEPCO have enjoyed a certain breathing room that they would not have enjoyed in probably any other Western democracy that we could think of because the people generally are not the type that are going to get up on mass and 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 demonstrate about it but to that uh speaking directly against that uh, we have seen the rise of a, a very strong anti-nuclear movement in japan over the past year as i think more and more people are becoming aware of the scale and the scope of what happened and just how thoroughly they've been lied to about all of this i think it's really starting to hammer home for a lot of people and i think people who would not normally be willing to question what the government is saying or or the uh, the official pronouncements are starting to do so so i think that we might be seeing the beginnings of a type of cultural shift here in japan and of course that's not filtering uh, up to the uh, to the media level, for example, yet that's not being accurately portrayed, I think, in the media here. But it is certainly something that you can see at the grassroots. And I, I myself was in Osaka last uh, in March for the one year anniversary of the Fukushima incident, where there was a uh, anti-nuclear rally that was taking place. Because uh, this is something that your listeners may know, may not know, over the past, uh, well, basically since the disaster happened, as uh, various reactors across the country have come up for routine scheduled maintenance and go offline because of that, they have not been being started up by the various uh, prefectures in which they reside. So basically, the, the governments have not gone ahead with, with starting them back up after their maintenance. And in that event, for the first time in, in decades, Japan has been nuclear-free for the last several months, as every single reactor uh, in the country has been shut down. And uh, that's, a, that's a pretty remarkable thing right there, because there are, I believe, 52 reactors across Japan, which is a, a significant number of reactors to, to go offline simultaneously. And uh, clearly, as a result of the, the incredible anti-nuclear sentiment that's built up here over the past year, and we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks, the prime minister has stepped in and finally uh, gotten the, uh, the go-ahead for the, the restart of uh, two reactors uh, in, in one part of the, the country here, closer to my side of the western half of the main island. And uh, so that will be taking place if, it, if that has not already started. In fact, it may have, and uh, it, it will probably be up and online by, by the end of July or early August at any rate. So we are starting to see the, uh, the government, the inevitable government pushback, I think, against this anti-nuclear sentiment. Um, and of course, looking out for the industry, uh, and and there's been a lot of pressure internationally to get the uh, the nuclear reactors back online, but uh, but it, it, that in itself brings up an entirely different type of cover up that's also been going on, I think, for several months now that relates to the ability of of the Japanese government or the Japanese country itself to to be able to provide the energy resources for the the people without nuclear power. 
And uh, and in fact, that we've seen cover ups from back in January of government calculations that found that even without any nuclear reactor whatsoever, there would be an overall surplus of energy in in Japan. So we've seen that this disaster has opened up at least the possibility for the the thought that perhaps Japan does not need nuclear power at all, which is something that I think is very worrying for a status quo that has invested greatly in that uh, in in that industry. Yeah, well, when I think of, um, I mean, obviously they're you know pro nuclear in the U.S., but uh, they're they're so still very very hooked on fossil fuels there, you know, as we all are, but just even more so in the states. But it was interesting what happened in in Japan uh, with regard to the the reactor shutdowns and then you know the resistance to them being restarted, because after France, in my mind anyway, I don't know what the stats are, but after France, I think of Japan as you know probably the next most fanatically nuclear country um, in the world. Um, but I was quite surprised to read that when all these reactors had been uh, temporarily shut down, um, at least it was meant to be temporarily, that that was only something like 30% of the country's generating capacity. Um, I expected it to be more, actually. As did, I think, a lot of people, even some of the people who live here, myself included, are are incredibly surprised to find just how uh, non-integral, I think, the, the nuclear part of that that equation is. I mean, obviously, it's been built into the infrastructure and, and it's uh, it's definitely part of the, the, the way that the energy grid has been set up here, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And in fact, when you think about it, Japan has an incredibly under underdeveloped potential for geothermal power, uh, being obviously quite a, a volcanic country and one that has a, a lot of potential to, to tap that resource and uh, also tidal power, which is uh, a growing field of research. And I think obviously Japan is is well positioned to be able to take advantage of that. So this type of disaster does open the possibility for those types of uh, renewable and sustainable ideas for, for generating significant amounts of power for, for those ideas to come on the table. And I think that the uh, the government and the, the, the energy industry as it exists here definitely has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and are very quick to to try to get these reactors back online and to get the anti-nuclear sentiment under control because I don't think they want to open up that discussion and to have people really discover that they don't need the nuclear power that they've been convinced that they do over the past several decades. Yes, we'll, we'll come on to some of the reasons um, for, for why that might be, but just to uh, speak again about health effects uh, long and short term, because as we know, when we're talking radiation here, um, we can be talking health effects so long term that they're basically intergenerational. You can talk about babies a generation, two generations from now being born with defects as a result of exposure to radiation somewhere down the genetic line. And I think because there weren't a lot of people staggering around with radiation burns or there weren't, you know, hundreds of body bags being carted out of the area in the immediate aftermath of Fukushima, that it was assumed that well, yes, there could be long-term um, uh, problems, long-term health effects, deaths attributed to this somewhere down the line. But if we can get through this immediate crisis period without scenes of, uh, you know, immediate illness and death, then, of course, the farther, and we've seen this happen elsewhere, particularly with Chernobyl, the farther uh, down the line we get, the easier it is to say, well, yes, you know, this person had, you know, leukemia, but can we really say that's a result of a nuclear disaster? And then it all starts to get very fuzzy at that point. That is the unfortunate effect of these types of unfolding disasters, as we talked about. That's, it's part of the problem is that, again, what 
particular leukemia, what particular cancer can be blamed particularly on the on this incident? All that the best that could be hoped for is some sort of statistical percentage that could that could give some indication of how many we could expect to see and then see if the actual cases of, of a particular type of cancer actually are in line with that. But again, that just seems like some sort of cold medical experiment. Um, l- let me let me be clear. I'm not a nuclear a- engineer. I'm not a nuclear expert, and I'm not a, a medical expert either. So, so I'm myself. I'm am just someone who's attempting to cover this for my own websites and trying to understand it as it's being relayed through the various media, both mainstream and alternative. And uh, I, I find myself uh, well. Certainly, I mean, I, I'm concerned personally. I live in Japan, so obviously, I am concerned about the effects of this and. I have done uh, uh, some research into this. So uh, from my own perspective, I know, for for example, myself and my wife, we just don't eat seafood anymore, basically, because we don't know if we can't determine where it's coming from precisely. I, I don't want to eat it because so much of the Pacific Ocean, if people look at the dispersion maps of the radiation that uh, that has leaked out already from from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, just unthinkable uh, amounts that have spread obviously into the, uh, the the fish themselves so i think seafood and and ingesting the the radiation that from those uh, sources is a particular concern uh, in terms of fallout uh, i think certainly people in the areas around fukushima have a lot to worry about but uh, but people further away um, are i suppose less affected by that but then again that depends on what which studies and which sources you you are going to take as authorities on that particular issue so for example we saw uh, last year there was a report uh, a study that came out that purported that there was an increase in deaths as a uh, so, presumably, supposedly, as a result of Fukushima, in the wake of Fukushima, of 18,000 people in the Western United States, um, which is a staggering figure. And it was widely reported in the alternative media, and it was uh, not really reported on uh, to speak of in the the mainstream media. And it seemed perhaps another indication of one of those types of cover-ups. Again, 18,000 people supposedly dropping dead in America from this. But uh, the study itself, when I started to look into it, it seemed to have just fundamental problems. There were not only uh, an inadequate statistical analysis of of the differences between uh, pre-Fukushima and post-Fukushima to account for those excess, quote-unquote, deaths. There were also uh, the problems, for example, uh, there were there were more excess deaths found in certain states that were on the eastern board of the United States than there were in states like California, which is obviously closer to Fukushima. So there were things that were unaccounted for in that study, but it was unproblematically being asserted that all of these deaths were in some way linked to Fukushima. So I think we run the risk, really, with this type of event of either uh, over over sensationalizing certain headlines and, and running with certain figures and also of course the other possibility is is covering up this information and it really is a type of tightrope that we're that we're all walking and we all have to decide well are we going to ex- take this information on board are we going to question if there's a cover-up on this and i think uh, again i'm not here to t- pronounced to anyone what you know what is or is not the truth i'm i'm still muddling my way through it but this is the type of situation that we get into when there have been demonstrable cover-ups of of the, the the amount of radiation that leaked out when it leaked out when the government knew that the meltdowns were going on that there were meltdowns at all itself was a fact that was withheld from the public for three months i mean that's a that's a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it that they were able to hold such a 
basic piece of information away from the public for three months before they finally admitted, oh, by the way, yes, it, they did melt down. The reactors uh, fully melted down uh, within days of the disaster. And we knew about it within days, but we didn't tell you for three months. That's a, that's a pretty remarkable breach of the basic trust that one would expect from these so-called authorities that are supposedly regulating all of this. So it does lead one to be extremely cynical about the types of things that we're reading about how this radiation is perfectly safe. But again, I think we have to we have to balance that with with uh, skepticism on the side of the people who are claiming that there has already been that type of medical disaster. And uh, it, as I say, it's a it's a tightrope to walk and one that we I think all have to find the sources that we trust or do not trust on this issue and 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 uh, continue to question our own assumptions. Well, of course, government again and again and again, government and military and corporate kind of trying to manage media and you know restrict information and just spin stories it just encourages conspiracy theories it encourages people and we've you know we've been trained now most of us anyway to be skeptical and just as yeah you know the headline news comes on and we just immediately discount it generally because and that's a problem because it's not always inaccurate information but that you know the authorities have created this problem for themselves by their behavior and uh, we can talk more about that. But just to backtrack slightly, you mentioned, uh, obviously, people in the immediate area of Fukushima, there being an issue with fallout. But um, I saw people, um, you'll know more about this than I, but in all sorts of areas of Japan going around with their little smog masks on uh, in an attempt to do, I'm not quite sure what, but um, not perhaps understanding that, and you mentioned not eating seafood, that the uh, radiation getting into food and drink is much more significant than, than breathing in particulate matter. And uh, the Japanese government uh, have been unable to control the spread of the radioactive material into the food supply. And that this material has been detected in all sorts of things, including seafood, but, you know, uh, leafy vegetables, milk and even beef um, up to, as I understand it, up to 200 miles away from Fukushima. And also something else that wasn't reported at the time is that uh, for I can't remember the size of the zone around Fukushima, but any farming that ever took place there has just stopped. Well, yes, and uh, there are so many different points to pick up on from that. But I think a lot of this goes back to people's perceptions of the problem and then how that can be managed by people who want to try to, I guess, keep the lid on, on Fukushima in, in a societal sense. Because people, for example, as you say, a lot of people are concerned about the fallout and breathing the particulates, breathing in the, the radiation. So they will, uh, for example, wear those surgical masks. Well, I think that's really just a Japanese uh, tendency. They, they tend to do that here, for example, when they get a cold. So why not to do it to protect yourself from radiation? I mean, it, 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 it's kind of ridiculous, but uh, it's more of a societal thing. But mm. but uh, you're exactly right. The perception might be that the, the, the fallout is the, the risk. And, and certainly when there is significant amounts of radioactive fallout, that is a risk. That is a, a much greater and direct threat uh, when you breathe in particulates like that. But since that that doesn't apply to to large swaths of the country, it's certainly the, it is the food supply that uh, that where a lot of this is accumulating and where people have to be very careful about what they're eating and trying to, for example, in my part of the country, 400 miles from Fukushima, we're trying to source basically as much as we possibly can locally. And uh, and you start to to 
really put together a, a grocery list that actually corresponds to your, you know, local vegetables and things like that. So, so we went a, a winter without potatoes, for example, because they're all coming from the northern sections of the country. So, so things like that, I think, are extremely important for people to be thinking about. And uh, as you say, so much of the, this has gone either into the into the soil, which of course was collected first by the leafy vegetables, then by the root vegetables, the the uh, the cattle that have been consuming the grass, etc have been ingesting this. So it's something that uh, people have to think about on that level. And uh, all of this plays into the the ways that people's perception of the crisis may be completely counter to what's actually taking place. And uh, once again, it's uh, an overall lack of information and knowledge about these issues that can be in, in a, the most cynical sense played on by, uh, by authorities to, to, for example, uh, we've seen I would say ridiculous, but I think that might downplay it. I, I suppose it, murderous types of campaigns that have been playing out here in Japan where there's been literally government-funded campaigns to try to support the Fukushima area by buying and eating their produce, by buying and eating their local goods, um, which is is just unthinkable, I think. Uh, it's unex- inexcusable that the government would actually be participating in that type of campaign. And uh, unfortunately, some people will buy into that. But uh, but that's the type of thing that happens in the immediate wake of this. Again, as people just don't really realize what the risks are and as their perceptions of the problem might not align at all with the reality. Now, you mentioned um, the uh, radiation showing up on the west coast of uh, North America and it's sort of showing up on the east coast of um uh, yes, it, no, it doesn't exist anymore. Soviet Union's gone, Greg. We're <laughs> getting get into the 21st century of Russia, Siberia, and that that whole area, and in China as well. And of course, the 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 coastal uh, system of Fukushima is such that the very strong currents, and that gets carried a very long way. So, and there was a lot of, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, a lot of uh, release of radioactive material into uh, the sea around the area. But, I mean, radiation attributable to Fukushima has shown up more or less all over the world. It took a while, but, it's you know, even the southern hemisphere um, and all parts, you know, it's central Europe, all sorts of places it's showing up measurable. Now, how much of a threat this is, we don't know, because I remember well when Chernobyl happened and there were measurable sources. I was living in Ireland at the time and they, they measured radiation in sheep flocks there and for only recently where restrictions on certain types of um, you know sale and processing activity were, were lifted so we're, we're looking at a situation where Japan has got its own situation to face very serious but there could be all sorts of ripple effects from this and um, you know globally which is going to uh, who knows if we're still living with effects from Chernobyl who knows what, what the effects of this will be long term Absolutely right. I, I, and I, I think that's that's an, exactly the, the case. I mean, we, we don't know what the, the long term effects are, but but exactly uh, as you indicate, we have seen demonstrably the, the radiation has been detectable in, in uh, throughout the northern hemisphere, especially and, and as you say, into the southern hemisphere. So so this is a, a global problem. And I, that goes back to the point that you were making before. Why has not why has the international community not stepped in to have uh, some more of a say over what's going on, considering the way that this has been managed so far, or should I say mismanaged with the uh, some of the things that we've seen taking place? 
And uh, and that's a, a very good question. Um, certainly, I'm I'm not one for these types of international bodies that that presume to have authority over enacting in, in, in local cases, because often we see the types of uh, the types of uh, collaboration and uh, conflict of interest that happens, for example, between the Japanese nuclear industry and the Japanese nuclear regulators, we see that type of collusion writ large in those types of international organizations. And I think that might go to more of the reason why the IAEA and other institutions like that have in their own way a vested interest in not not playing too much into this disaster because the end of the nuclear industry is to a certain extent not what bodies like the IAEA are interested in doing. They're interested in perpetuating the the industry itself. And that's reflected in such things as an agreement that the IAEA has with the WHO, the World Health Organization, not to investigate each other's areas. So that means to say that the World Health Organization won't pronounce on the the medical uh, effects of, of nuclear radiation from these types of crises because that's an IAEA area. So they get to work with the nuclear industry to, to try to set some of those standards and some of the, some of the uh, techniques that they have for, for setting, uh, establishing safe levels of radiation. So we see the types of uh, collusion and things going on at that level. And it's just, it's, it's really quite confusing, I think, for, for someone at this level, just a regular citizen who's wondering what to do, how they can even really influence or affect this situation, which is having an effect on the globe as we speak. Mm. Well, in terms of the nuclear industry and its future, I mean, I, I was sort of gobsmacked, uh, maybe because I didn't have background or inside information when Germany announced uh, that it was going to basically, you know, cancel its its nuclear program, which is quite well advanced. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't think in, on one level that sort of politically uh, that that would be allowed to happen because it was such a red flag. It was such a significant decision. But of course, we see other, as I understand it here in the UK, for example, plans to um, to upgrade and um, create new nuclear facilities are moving forward. So at a, at a cursory look, it seems a bit of a diverse situation. But um, I mean, w- what did you make of the, uh, the Germany decision? Well, absolutely. I think quite astounding and, and obviously unthinkable without something like Fukushima as the precedent for that. But as I say, I think we are at least at the point as a, oh, I would like to think, you know, globally where we would be willing to, to contemplate really what this this industry is, where it sprang from and, and how it can be, if not eradicated, at least reformed uh, to, to something that, that makes more sense. Uh, because the, the, the industry as we know it, as we have known it, has been based on these types of reactors, which were developed hand in glove with the the nuclear weapons industries. So that's why we have the types of reactors we do running the types of fuel that they have, as opposed to, say, something like thorium, which is uh, which has for a long time promised to be the type of nuclear power plant that I think people were sold on 50 years ago when the Atoms for Peace project was was going along. The idea of of something that would be fundamentally stable, something that would be much, much much more, uh, much less prone to these types of events. But why? Why did they use uranium? Well, because it is it's something that goes hand in glove with the nuclear weapons uh, programs, and it, it can be used to process uh, fuel for the nuclear weapons. So I think that's we we with this type of disaster, we have this opportunity to actually really examine what is this industry? How did it develop to the point where it is, and how do we actually reform ourselves away from this uh, this type of 
basically ticking time bomb to use that that illusion that that metaphor but in fact it may be more more uh, literal than metaphorical in in the case of things like fukushima so so i think um th- as as you indicate this is um something that that can't be allowed to happen in terms of the the status quo in terms of the industry that has literally billions of dollars invested in the infrastructure for this and then of course all of the 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 things that flow from it including its its collaboration really it's it's hand in glove nature with weapons programs of of the various nuclear powers so there's a lot invested in the system as it exists and it's only at times of incredible destabilization like this that we could even really start to open up that type of conversation about reform of the industry itself yeah well in in terms of uh, you know Fukushima perhaps being in some small way the beginning of the end of the nuclear industry of course as you say this is intimately linked to nuclear weapons um, programs um, not just nuclear powered submarines for example but the, you know the stockpiles of nuclear um, missiles that already exist uh, lots of other uses for um, uh, facile material in weapons such as uranium in <clears throat> excuse me armor piercing shells and what have you depleted uranium um, so, but on the other hand, despite these other, um, you know, military uses, we're supposed to be, and we were told that, you know, the, the, the age of, you know, the nuclear threat is over and there's, uh, you know, nuclear weapons are being decommissioned. Um, I don't know what state that program is in globally, but we see the efforts to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear power program, you know, under the guise that they want to use the material for weapons. Uh, program ultimately so you know is it because is even though we're told that nuclear war isn't really a feasible option anymore never was but is it the fact that these weapons still exist that they've still got to somehow manage this that they you know that we've seen some countries you know uh, unilaterally giving up their nuclear weapons but there's a bit of a sort of mexican standoff going on that as long as this goes on and you've got this uh, nuclear uh, power industry that wants to keep feeding itself that even though it would make sense to drop nuclear across the board that that's, we've just got a very complex messy situation here that even if it does unwind itself it's going to take a long time and there's going to be a lot of hiccups along the way uh there's no question and i think the 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 if that is the place that we decide as a, as a society as a civilization as a species that we want to go it, it, i think hiccups would be the uh the best we could hope for i think there would be violent death throes of this type of Industry, I say industry, but of course it's tied into an entire socio-political construct uh, infrastructure that kind of undergirds it. That I think makes it almost unthinkable to, for for uh, certain sections of of society to to really envision the end of the this type of nuclear program. And uh, of course, we we know that the nuclear club, the nuclear weapons club, has been that type of geopolitical. I suppose a club that, that that they can use to club people over the head, and and uh, obviously it becomes that type of, I, I guess, um, well, insiders only, um, uh, members only uh, area that 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 becomes a, a, an extremely powerful geopolitical uh, bargaining tool in various ways. So that, for example, uh, there there's been 
tons of research over the years to to demonstrate that the AQCon network that proliferated nuclear weapons to Pakistan was fully known about and uh, and watched over by the CIA even as AQCon was bringing the the nukes to Pakistan because ultimately it, the United States wanted Pakistan to to get the bomb. So it becomes a, 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 a an explicitly hypocritical type of thing where it becomes about well if we if we want to allow you to have the bomb you can have it and if we don't then you can't. And uh, and there are all sorts of underhanded dealings that go on about that. And interestingly enough, in fact, just earlier this year, uh, Joseph Trento with DC Bureau came out with this exhaustive investigation. It's uh, the end result of a two two decades long investigation um, that that has proven conclusively that the United States was uh, circumventing its own laws, breaking its own laws, really, to help Japan accumulate tons of highly enriched plutonium, which was against uh, U.S. regulations and laws, that for a, a, a secret nuclear program that kind of undergirds the, the Japanese nuclear program. Not that the Japanese government has nuclear weapons at this point, but they have the, the materials that basically they could switch to nuclear weapons production pretty much at a moment's notice. And uh, that's one of the reasons that the Japan has 52 nuclear reactors and such a, a well-developed nuclear infrastructure is that in the event uh, that they ever, you know, there was ever any type of disturbance over here with China, with North Korea, with all of the the security threats uh, that, that take place here, the, the, I suppose the implication is that Japan would have been able to switch over into nuclear arms production quite easily, which is, of course, a horrific thing to contemplate and something that could never have been revealed openly to the Japanese public until quite recently, because uh, Japan obviously, for very obvious reasons, has a very has always had a very strong anti-nuclear sentiment. But it goes to show the types of geopolitics and underhanded <clears throat> dealings that get played as part of this, and and I think we can't really separate the nuclear power industry from any of this, because as I say, the uranium type reactors that have been developed were developed specifically as as adjuncts to those nuclear programs. And that's why we have the technology we have. And until we start to put all of those pieces on the table, I don't think we as a, a society can really have that type of informed discussion about what this all means and where it's all heading. Now, when you look objectively at uh, nuclear power as an option, the the sort of technology we have had, do have, and, and you know are bringing forward. Basic financially, from an energy point of view, a pure energy point of view, it doesn't actually add up. It doesn't make sense. And we can see that the investment community uh, showing great reluctance now um, about getting heavily involved um, with development of uh, you know domestic uh, nuclear programs for energy generation. But when you factor in this military, you know, equation, the fact that they're intimately linked together, basically it's one thing. And the fact that it doesn't make sense from an economic point of view, from an energy generation point of view, you know, the, the amount of uh, energy and money you put in to the amount of energy that you get out, that kind of goes away a little bit because we know that when it comes to military programs and military spending, um, normal common sense calculations tend to not get made. And if they are, you know, the results tend to get ignored. Well, that's exactly right. I think we have to understand that uh, even if it's not an explicit and one-to-one -one link between the nuclear weapons industry and the nuclear power industry, I think we have to understand that there is at least sort of an implicit link. For example, when governments are, are willing to give certain political concessions or or, or economic incentives to uh, energy 
companies in order to maintain these types of nuclear power plants as a uh, scratch your back, you scratch mine. And we, we maintain this, this infrastructure, for example, in the Japanese case, uh, for a potential nuclear weapons uh, production facilities in the future, or, or in the, the American context, it would be different. In, in Europe, it would be different altogether. But, uh, but still, there is that, that in the, the idea that without some sort of governmental uh, help or or complicity in in the industry itself, the industry wouldn't be able to thrive economically. And that was a point that, uh, for example, when I interviewed Joseph Trento about that article I referred to earlier, um, I, I talked to him earlier this year, and he 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 basically said flat out that that nuclear power just does not make economic sense. The only possible way we can see it making sense is within that military industrial type of context that is always the the sort of elephant in the room that undergirds nuclear power. So, so I think until we start really thinking outside of that that nuclear power box and really questioning why it's even needed at all, I don't think we'll be able to open up the discussion about about specific things like, for example, at Fukushima, how do we deal with this issue? Well, there's two main uh, strands to uh, you know, the argument around nuclear power, as because that's been held out as our future from the earliest days of the program. This was going to be the alternative to fossil fuels, and basically it would take decades to get us all on stream, but nuclear was going to be the only uh, fuel source, energy source for the earth that was going to allow us to maintain and increase our energy usage, which is, you know, the direction we've been going in with fossil fuels. But one thing is that there's nuclear fuel. I mean, people don't, well, they do tend to forget that the fuel that that, uh, goes into reactors is a, a limited resource on the earth as well. That's got to be you know, manufactured as we procured, dug out of the ground, basically. And as we saw, you know, very starkly, uh, the Fukushima disaster, no one has yet figured out what to do with the waste. So basically, as I understand it, some of it gets reprocessed for other nuclear uses, but basically all the nuclear waste has ever been generated is still sitting around somewhere. So that's two other major reasons why from a, you know, purely civilian um energy point of view, nuclear doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. I mean, when you go and and look at the entire life cycle of the fuel that is being used to power the plants that create the power, I mean, it's it, when you start to take into account the, the full life cycle, you start to realize that uh, just, the, I mean, the processing of the uranium itself in order to get something that's usable as fuel for the plant is an incredibly intensive process. And, uh, and you're right. I mean, the, 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 the benefit is 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 there, but it's not the type of benefit that I think people were sold on, as I say, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago now when the, the propaganda really started up in earnest for this type of industry to be created. And of course, it was created on the back of government funding and government grants and government programs as this type of propaganda campaign to to get the public on board with the, the nuclear future. And, uh, and since that's obviously not come true. I mean, that's obviously failed to materialize in the way that we were promised. Uh, uh, what was it was sold as uh, being too cheap to meter energy too cheap to meter was the way that they were trying to sell it to the public back in the 1950s. I mean, clearly, since that has fundamentally failed to materialize, you would think as a, as a society, we'd be willing to at least step back and start to question uh, some of the alternatives. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean getting out of the idea of nuclear energy altogether. I mean, there are there are things like thorium, which are still being developed and have not made much progress over the past uh, few decades since it was proposed. 
precisely because there is such an investment in the existing uranium-powered infrastructure. But if we start looking at some of these alternatives, I think we would see in the long run it would make a much, much wiser investment um, in terms of, uh, even just just in terms of avoiding something like Fukushima in the future. Well, I think that the the link-in that we've discussed with the uh, with military use of nuclear materials and nuclear power is going to just contribute to us, you know, for longer and in a more dangerous manner, not addressing some of the ener- energy issues that you've alluded to and asking fundamental questions about the future of our entire society, the energy use that we that we base it on. And there may be some very big, very scary questions for us to face as to how much longer what we take for granted will continue. And the, you know, obscuration of the the major issues by the military um, tie-in is going to just further create immense problems for us down the road uh, as energy issues become more and more um, essential and urgent for us to address. Exactly right. And and I think there are so many factors to take into consideration here. But uh, but uh, certainly when we start to look at the untapped potential of things like geothermal and uh, and tidal power and, and some of these ideas that have not been pursued, I think, in the way that they should be because of this, the dominance of the nuclear industry as an industry. I think when we start to look at some of those potentials, it, it certainly does make sense to us uh, to to start pursuing some of those. And I think that some of the uh, the ideas that that have been pursued with with government assistance, like wind power, have turned out to be debacles in a number of senses. But that doesn't mean I, I think some people get to see some of those uh, those debacles and they start to think that the entire idea is pie in the sky and we have this proven technology here with the the nuclear industry why don't we just continue to uh, to invest in that and people get invested so so much in that idea that they then start to start to really defend uh, basically anything that happens to that industry so that we saw in just some really bizarre and perhaps unexpected uh, viewpoints from people who would one would otherwise associate with the idea of environmentalism and and trying to get off of uh, carbon you know based uh, energy which I myself don't don't see the, the the pressing need for, but I think overall in in the long term we're going to have to do so. I think it would just make more sense for our society. But but certainly when you start to look at people like Mombio and and others who were writing in the Guardian about how great things are, and oh now that Fukushima has happened, I trust nuclear energy even more because look it turned out to be so great. Uh, it just really bizarre things, and I think we see some of that politics making strange bed- bedfellows. And uh, and it just goes to show, I think, that how, just how many people are invested in one sense or another, not necessarily financially, in that that status quo and in the idea of the the promise that nuclear power has has held out for so long. And I I, I just hope that this type of uh, horrible calamity can at least bear some fruit, can at least have some. I don't want to say reward because obviously no reward will ever make up for what's already occurred or what c- could occur in the future, but at least give us serve us in the sense that it can open some people up to the possibilities of exploring some of these untapped potentials. And uh, that's really where we have to be heading as a society. But I, I am seeing obviously more of that happening in Japan and more of the societal discussion about the need for nuclear or the lack of, thereof. But uh, I don't know 
to what extent that's translating around the world. We do see that in isolated contexts like in Germany, but but in France, in America, in many other countries, uh, in the UK, uh, we see the, the nuclear industry either maintaining or even gaining steam. So, uh, so again, it's, it's something that we, I think, have to continue pushing. And uh, if, if something like Fukushima doesn't really open up this discussion, then really what possibly could? Well, yes, as a species, we do seem to have a historical record of needing to face uh, getting ourselves into a severe crisis before we actually take any action, uh, when action taken earlier on would have made the situation much less um, damaging. But, um, I mean, just to... I guess in conclusion, um, as far as Fukushima is concerned, this sort of incident has happened before. And unfortunately, if things carry on the way they are, it's probably going to happen again. We saw um, last year in the US a couple of nuclear facilities, one of which was uh, affected by severe flooding, uh, another one which was affected by wildfires, forest fires, which came dangerously close to the plant. And we didn't see that the authorities really, uh, when it came down to it, their, that behavior was any better than the Japanese authorities in those cases. And when you look at globally the number of um, nuclear facilities there are, um, well, it, you know, even if it's a numbers game, I, I fear this is, sort of thing is going to happen again. And maybe will have to happen again before we finally learn our lesson. Well, it certainly is an, a numbers game. And that number, I mean, people are crossing their fingers and thinking, well, it's a one in every 10,000 year event. We will probably never see it in our lifetime. But as you as you point out, there were numerous incidents last year in the U.S. alone, uh, very serious incidents that, that very easily could have resulted in some some type of uh, nuclear disaster. And it, uh, it again, I, I don't want to be pessimistic here in, in conclusion, but I do. I do concur with you that uh, that often just the the human human nature being what it is I think people really uh, don't tend to take a, uh, notice of this looming problem until it really smacks them in the face and uh, that's why I think that we have to continue to to draw attention to Fukushima and to try to open up that discourse about what it really means before it can be spun off and and spun out of public consciousness again, and uh, and who knows? I mean, still, as I say, Reactor Four in an extremely precarious situation. That if that collapses, I mean, I think we'll we'll be having a very 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 different conversation uh, as a human species. I, I don't think there would be a way to get around that, given the scale of what's at stake there with all of those uh, spent that spent fuel pool with all of that. Uh, just uh, so much uh, fuel that's that's accumulated there. It's almost unthinkable to think of the, that structure collapsing. But uh, but again, I, I I think that this provides at least the opportunity. And if we don't uh, try to leverage this now, then then we're really wasting what I guess is an opportunity. We have to at least understand that now that it's taken place. I certainly don't want to to, to try to make something light of what's happened. But I think we have to at least take take what we can and start to really have this conversation about where we want to head in terms of our energy capacity for the future. Yes, we need to look at it objectively free from agendas and, uh, you know, political, undue political influence. And uh, on that note, uh, not only uh, James Corbett, do you have CorbettReport.com, your main website, as I understand it. You also run uh, FukushimaUpdate.com, which would be, sounds like a one-stop shop for the latest information. Perhaps you could tell people about your online resources where they they can go to uh, see your material, listen to you. And also, um, 
I understand you're working on a book, reportage essays on the new world order. Maybe give us the latest on that. That's right. So yes, CorbettReport.com is the best place to go for all of all of my work will be linked there in one form or another. And as you indicate, FukushimaUpdate.com is specifically about Fukushima news and information. It was uh, updated on a daily basis throughout last year, but I must admit, even myself, I, um, you know, when when other things come up, I start to to drift into other topics, and it doesn't get updated on a daily basis anymore. So, so part of that uh, that overall uh, effect of the way that media functions uh, even affects the alternative media as well. But but certainly, I do try to to keep up with the Fukushima news and I do post there when and if and as I can. And uh, and as you mentioned also, I guess I have a book coming out hopefully later this year. I've been promising that for a couple of years now. So <laughs> we'll see if I'm able to actually scrounge up enough uh, spare minutes in, in each day to, to make that happen. But, but it's a series of essays that I'm working on um, basically on a broad number of different subjects that that broadly correspond to what I cover at CorbettReport.com, which is things uh, from everything from false flag terrorism to central banking and uh, everything in between. So so certainly a lot uh, that I'm working on at, at all times. And uh, Fukushima Update is where people would go for the uh, the latest on Fukushima. But since that isn't updated on a daily basis anymore, I'm not sure I can recommend it as the, uh, the most up-to-date resource. Um, for that, I would recommend enenews.com is a, a great website. I'm not really a Affiliated with it in any way, but mm -hmm. I use it myself when I'm scanning the headlines to see what the latest on Fukushima is. Okay, uh, powerful information and insight as always. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're welcome. Well, that's it for this time. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Remember to visit CorbettReport.com to find out the latest on James' work and, of course, his other website, FukushimaUpdate.com, which, although as he admits is not updated as often as he would like, is still a mine of information uh, all about Fukushima and all the issues surrounding it and the ongoing coverage or lack thereof. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.